you've been with us uh, over the past few months, you know we've been studying a couple kings in the Old Testament. The first king of Israel was a guy named Saul. Uh, he's a bad king, pretty much always. Uh, the second king of Israel is a guy named David, and uh, he's a good king, not perfect, but good. And so we've been talking about this good king, bad king uh, interrelationship, uh, and, and it's starting to kind of heat up. Has anybody been noticing that? Uh, spears have been thrown on a regular basis in our recent studies, uh, and that's where we kind of left off. I want to thank Tom Eichum for doing an amazing job preaching God's word over the last couple weeks. Love that guy. Uh, but this is what he read as he finished last week. Uh, David was there in, in Saul's presence. If you don't know, Saul is very jealous of David. He's the, the newly anointed king of Israel. Uh, Saul's got lots of issues. Uh, and uh, he's not good at handling them. And so uh, he uh, lets his anger get the best of him. And he sought to pin, verse 10, he sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. Who hasn't done that a couple times in life, right? You get mad at someone at work and you grab your spear. It's right by your desk and you just, you know, throw it at him. This is kind of extreme. Uh, uh, he sought to, uh, you know, throw this spear at David, but uh, David, uh, three times this has happened. He's, he's gotten used to this. He's kind of expecting the spear at this point. Um, so on the, uh, you know, on the third throw, uh, once again, he eludes Saul so that the, str- uh, the spear struck the wall. Um, and this is the beginning of David's run. Uh, it says that he fled and escaped into the night for, for the next uh, little piece of 1 Samuel here. We're going to be watching David run for his life. Uh, and, and everything changes uh, starting with this verse. Uh, it's always you know, been, or at least in recent days, it's been hard between Saul and David, but now it's just abject, um, murderous rage. Uh, David's uh, Israel's most wanted. His, uh, his face is put up in every post office in Israel at this point. Uh, and he is uh, on the run from here on out. Just a, a quick aside, um, you gotta love that the Bible just doesn't pull punches and tells the truth. Like, I don't know how messed up your family is, but this is a messed up family. Can everybody agree with me? And don't forget that David is family. His father-in-law, uh, Saul, is throwing spears at him. I, picture, uh, I try to picture my father-in-law, Byron, throwing spears at me. Uh, I'm grateful that he hasn't yet. Uh, Stay tuned. But, uh, 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 you know, uh, we, we love watching, you know, families on TV that are worse than ours. It makes us feel about ours. Read your Bible. There's a lot of crazy ones in there. All right, here we go. A couple of things that we're going to walk through in this story uh, as, as it kind of progresses. Uh, we're going to start, first of all, at David's house, and we're going to see uh, how his wife, a, a lady named Michael, uh, stands in the gap for him and, and assists in his escape. Uh, we'll study that for a second, and then we're going to go uh, to to Saul and his uh, henchmen, his his uh, Mossad, as it were, from back then, uh, seeking David and being thwarted by the power of God. Anybody here grateful for the power of God in life, like Him intercessing and interceding uh, on our parts, um, happens way more often than I think we notice. Uh, but He has the power to overcome impossible circumstances. So here we go, starting in verse eleven. Uh, He's thrown the spear. David has escaped uh, his presence. And so Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. Uh, uh, They're there in their dark sedan, right? They're parked outside David's house. You know, they're just kind of watching the doors, making sure that David doesn't try to sneak out. Um, But uh, they haven't been ordered to go in. They're just going to wait until David walks out, and then they'll take him so that he can be executed by his king. Uh, but Michael, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, who was given an, in marriage to David for his, uh, his triumph over Goliath. Remember that story, right? 
This was part of uh, uh, David's reward, was to be married to this woman, Michael, and she apparently really digs him. Like everybody else in Israel except Saul. Everybody gets this, right? Everybody else is Team David. Like, like Saul's kids, Jonathan. Uh, last week you heard, uh, or a couple weeks ago, Tom talked about Jonathan and how he sought to preserve David's life. Now his wife, Michael, also the daughter of Saul. Team David, not Team Saul. Uh, she turns to David and says, if you do not escape tonight with your life, uh, tomorrow you will be killed. Maybe she's peeking out the dining room window. She sees the sedan and she's like, oh man, these guys aren't going anywhere. We gotta get you uh, out of this house. And so Michael lets David down through a window and he fled away and escaped. I don't know if they tied the bed sheets in knots. You know, it's, it's a classic. That was on Brady Bunch, I think. I don't know. But somehow, David is let down out of a window and uh, set free uh, from this murderous plot. Uh, Michael doesn't stop there, though. Look at verse 13. Michael takes an image, uh, Hebrew time. Everybody ready for some Hebrew? This is the Hebrew word terafim. Everybody say terafim. It sounds like a, a more common Hebrew word. Who's ever heard the word seraphim or seraphim? Seraphim is a, an angel of God, all right? Terafim is the word for idol. It's the word for an anti-god. Uh, something that is worshipped other than God. Uh, so she takes this, it says in the English Standard Version, an image or an idol, a life-sized idol, right? You know, uh, actual size. And she lays it on the bed and puts a, a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covers it with the clothes of David. She's pulling a Ferris Bueller. Who, who saw that movie? Anybody remember that movie? I mean, Ferris wanted to, you know, fake, uh, you know, his sickness so he could have his day off, right? Classic. And, uh, and what does he do? He's got a mannequin. He's got strings tied. I wanted to show you this, but apparently it'll throw us off the stream if I do. But, uh, um, you know, it's just this classic uh, video of his, his sound effects snoring and his mom being duped. It's Ferris Bueller's day off right here in our Bibles, right? And she's dressing up this mannequin, this, this idol, and putting goat's hair in clothes so that... When Saul sends his messengers, perhaps the next morning, uh, to take David, she says, oh, no, he can't be bothered right now, <laughs> and, and show, opens the door, Ferris's door, and says, see, he's sick. Now, not the sharpest uh, tools in the shed here, these two guys. They totally fall for it, and they head back to Saul to report, yeah, uh, David's too sick to kill. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Couple of things real quick here, and it's gonna come up later in our story. Michael has a teraphim. Uh, uh, we we can kind of deduce from that that Michael isn't worshiping the one true God. She's kind of dabbling in some other ideas. I'm so grateful that that's not ever a problem in our current world, that, that no one has these other ideas of who God is or, or things to worship. Is everybody grateful for that? Is there, yeah, okay. Um, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, uh, she's got uh, other objects of worship, and she's actually employing one of them in saving her husband's skin. We'll get back to that later in the story, but just wanted to point that out. Uh, Saul then uh, gets the report, and he sends the messengers to see David. Go back there, fellas. Are you kidding me? Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. I don't care if he's sick. He's going to die. We're not going to wait for him to get better before we kill him. So take a stretcher, haul his carcass up out of that bed, and let's, just, let's get this thing going, right? Saul's like, ah, oh, so hard to find good people. <laughs> and so the messengers go back, and they come in, and behold, the image was in the bed. They hadn't noticed the first time, right? They'd just come back with the report, yeah, David's sleeping it off. He's, he's really sick. But then they find 
the image in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head, and they're like, oh! And it reminded me of that foreigner song, the jig is up, the news is out. They finally found me. Some of you know it. Anyway, uh, uh, the jig's up for Michael. She's busted. Who's been there? Anybody been busted? <laughs> but I don't think she's gotten this far in the plan. Uh, why does she put the, 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 the idol in that and you know, dress it up like David? So to buy David time, right? These guys could come in the door at any moment. She knows that, and so she's got to create a, a ruse so that David has the, the space that he needs to get away. Uh, but she, she had a great plan to start, and now she's kind of scrambling. Wait a minute. My father is a murderous maniac, and I've now been complicit in the escape of my husband. What's that going to mean for me? Aiding and abetting. She's going to face it, and she does in the next verse. Saul says to Michael, verse 17, why have you deceived me thus? And Why have you let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael's thinking on her feet, ah, bah, 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 right? And she answers Saul, and she says, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? It's kind of a strange English sentence, but what she's basically saying is, say, Dad, I had to. Uh, David was going to end me if I didn't do this. It was under duress that I aided your enemy. It's not my fault. Huh. Uh, Michael, in this story, lies twice. First, with the ruse, right? Set up the teraphim and the, and the, you know, the, the, the dupe, the soldiers. And then bold-faced to her father to preserve her own skin. Um, some scholars think that uh, Saul probably filed this away as his actual reason uh, when he spoke to others about his pursuit of David. He threatened the life of my daughter. This is just a, a quick reminder that lies almost never work out. Is everybody with me on that? They're always going to kind of head in directions that you can't control. And, uh, and so if that is the case, uh, uh, poor Michael, she kind of blew it. But it brings up a brief conversation on deceit. Can we talk about lying this morning? Is it ever okay to lie? Here's what I want you to do. Turn to someone next to you and uh, tell them your worst lie ever. No, don't do that. Anyway, uh, uh, turn to someone next to you and just kind of have that conversation. Is it ever okay to lie and in what situations might it be? Go ahead. Is it ever okay to lie? I'm just going to warm myself by this fire while you do that. Hang on. I've been wanting to do that since they set it up. Okay, uh, is it ever okay to lie? Who says yes? Show of hands. You sinners. <laughs> Let me start with this. In almost every situation, just so we're clear, in almost every situation, now I don't know what the percentage would be, but 99% for sure and then some, in almost every situation, deceit is wrong. Your pastor's not telling you to go ahead and lie, have a good time, it'll be fun. In almost every situation, deceit is wrong. It's cl clearly prohibited in our book, all right? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor is commandment number nine in the Big Ten, not the football conference, the Ten Commandments. And, and so we are not to lie. It is uh, uh, actually a characteristic of the away team. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, 
Our adversary is known for his lies. His, his followers, the demons, the, the angels of deceit, um, seek to mislead us at every uh, point of life. Uh, the whole thing, the whole mess in our, our book starts with his lies. He slithers into the garden and dupes the first humans, and sin was the result. He's a liar. Uh, Jesus was uh, speaking uh, to some Pharisees who earlier in John chapter 8, where I'm going to read to you from, uh, had called Jesus a liar. You're a liar. You're only in this for yourself. Uh, you lie. And Jesus was like, well, gloves off, right? Hockey fight. And he just starts verbally un- undressing, undoing these Pharisees. He culminates in one of my favorite verses from Jesus to the Pharisees. He says this, verse 44, uh, you guys of your father, the devil. You wonder why they killed him, right? I don't, but... Uh, they're building their case. He's called the chief religious leaders of the time uh, uh, sons of the devil. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He was a murderer. I don't remember Satan killing anybody. He totally brought death into, into life when he told his lies and the result was sin and the wages of sin is, yeah, his lies brought us death through sin. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, Jesus finishes, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. A famous phrase from poetry is this one, oh, what a tangle web we weave when we practice, when first we practice, to deceive. I always thought that was Shakespeare. It's not. It's a guy named Sir Walter Scott. Uh, he wrote this in uh, a big, huge poem that he wrote back in 1808. But doesn't that just kind of capture uh, the effect of deceit? Like, I don't know about you. Let me tell you a lie. I never lie. Uh, <laughs> that's, that was funny to me. Anyway, uh, but deceit requires more deceit. Has anybody ever noticed that? When you tell the first lie, you've got to cover that one up, and you've got to make up another one to cover that one up, and then you make up, and this is what he's talking about, about this tangled web. I, I love nature. I love what God's created creatures to do. I think spider webs are awesome. They're amazing to me. This little bug knows how to make a house and a food catcher out of something that's from inside his body, Right? But has anybody ever walked through a spider web? Gross, <laughs> right? Well, once the web is all tangled up, it's good for nothing. It brings no uh, positive value. And I think that's Walter, what Walter was speaking of. Uh, it's a tangled web, a mess. God, if, just one last thing. Uh, if you don't think that God is against you plagiarizing on your homework, students, that's a lie. Have a nice day. Uh, um, cheating on your taxes, adults. You might think I'll give more to the church. You lied to do it. Stop. Ananias and Sapphira, anybody heard of them? <laughs> uh, exaggerating so that you look better. Slandering so that others look worse. Spreading the rumors that you have. This is, this, this is so rampant these days. I read it on the internet. You don't know if it's true. Stop it. Stop contributing to the tangled web that is deceit. So in most cases, almost all cases, lying's wrong. But 
If you guessed this one, you were correct. In rare cases, very rare. And let me emphasize that because sometimes you can hear a preacher preach and you're like, goody, he told me I can lie. No, I'm not telling you you can lie. In fact, I would tell you it's more lesser evil in bringing about God's greater good. But in rare cases, I would say justifiable deceit is okay. In the defense of other people and the preservation of those people's lives, uh, a person can choose, like I said, this lesser evil of lying for the greater good of survival. We see it now, and the reason I say this is not because it's what I think, it's what's shown us in our scriptures. Uh, a few, uh, I guess it was a year or so ago, we studied the book of Exodus together uh, as Moses goes to uh, uh, you know, Egypt and frees the slaves uh, there in that book. Uh, we get to his birth story, and Moses is this miracle baby. It had been uh, an edict in Egypt that the firstborn sons of the Jews would be put to the sword because there was uh, getting to be too many of them, and they, it's horrible, but they had to cull the herd. Right? And so there were these um, uh, two midwives. Uh, their names were Shifra and Pua in Exodus chapter 1. And uh, uh, they got bad marks for being midwives because uh, they kept allowing the uh, Israeli boys to be born. They were supposed to be uh, you know, uh, killed right as they were born. And, and, and then these ch- children, and apparently they wouldn't touch them after they'd been born for a while. And so they were brought before the board and asked, how is this possible? And they said, oh, those, those Israeli women are just too hardy. Now, they call us to be there for the birth, but then the, the baby's already born and, and gone before we can even do anything about it. They lied so that uh, babies could be given life. Rahab, come on, the most famous liar in the Bible is this prostitute from Jericho named Rahab. Um, she makes it into the genealogical line of Jesus himself. Read it in Matthew chapter one, okay? So a Gentile prostitute is in our Savior's uh, DNA. But she uh, is commended for her faith in choosing God and in doing so, lying to her superiors in Jericho. Look what it says in Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient there in Jericho because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That's kind of a, a, a truncated uh, explanation of what she did. She lied and, and allowed them. There was a lot of windows and people being let down out of windows. But she allowed these spies who were spying out Jericho, these Israeli spies, to escape out her window and lied to the Jericho authorities. It says in James chapter 2, as uh, James talks about faith and works and how you have to have both, he says, you want an example of a faith that works? Uh, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So uh, here's what I'm saying. In these rare cases, this seeming disobedience of deceit is commended by a God who brought uh, about a greater good from those lies being told. Uh, I trust that anybody here, if your family's, uh, family member's life's depended on it, you'd be okay with maybe saying, yep, yeah, I don't know where they are, even though they're right behind that closet door, or whatever, right? We, we do what we uh, need to do in this regard occasionally, rarely, uh, as a means of bringing about a greater good. I thought this was interesting. I might not say it next service, but congratulations. Here you go. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, anybody heard of him? Old Tommy was a a theologian uh, in the Middle Ages, and uh, he came up with the three tiers of deceit. They're hard words, English words. The first one are the officious lies. 
uh, or the justifiable deceits that we're talking about. They're, they're right because they help others. And then he had these ones. I thought this was fun. The jocose lies. Everybody knows the word jocose, right? I mean, said it this morning, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, uh, jocose, that, the root there is joke. And I thought about this. I like to tell a good joke every once in a while. I like to laugh. Anybody else like to laugh? Almost every joke has like uh, some kind of misleading in it. Like the classic is this. You ever walk, to, walk up to your friend and be like, oh man, you got something on your shirt. And then as soon as they look down, you pop them in the nose. Who started that? I don't even know why that's funny. It is every time. If you can catch someone, the other one's the whole tap on this shoulder and walk around here, <laughs> right? Humans are weird. But uh, almost every joke starts with some kind of lie. Sarcasm is rooted in telling humorous lies. So apparently those are okay. But the mischievous, he, he says, the, the mischievous lies, the malevolent lies, which is by far uh, the, 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 the preponderance of deceit, those are out of bounds. Just wanted to talk about lying to finally be able to say this. In all things, can we agree that discerning the truth, capital T, is crucial? In a world that is full of falsehood, we as the church are on this mission to discern from the God who created us and who created all that is, what his truth is, and to bend our lives in that direction, in honor of him and in pursuit of the best life that he can give us. Now, I, I bring this up because uh, since, uh, well, since the beginning of, uh, of the beginning, uh, lies have plagued us. Most recently, it's in this whole uh, area of thought called postmodernism. They've taken objective truth and just thrown it out. What's true to you is true to you. And your truth can be your truth, and my truth is my truth, and that's just not a true statement. It's just not true. You can't have competing truths, at least at some level. It, it falls apart. And if everything's true, nothing's false. There's no lies out there anymore. People don't understand why we can't get with them on this stuff. Just accept that what we say is true, just as much as what you say is true. And we're like, eh, can't do it. We got this book of truth. This is our guide, our standard for what's true in life. It's why we hang out here on Sunday mornings, and I yell at you about it every time. It's because this is what guides us in life. It's why you read this. I pray. Listen, look at me. If you're a Christian... This is your first thing in the morning. This is what you live on in life. It says to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, his truth, and it's found in here. That's why you get together in your life groups. I hope you have great friendships and support each other through the storms of life, but I pray that everything is rooted in and centered around the truth that we've been given from God because his truth, big T, is crucial for us living in a way that glorifies him. That's the first story. Somewhere outside of town, uh, actually three miles outside of Gibeah where this is all going down, David has run. And he has made it to a place called Rama. Rama Lamandingdong. Not really. Uh, Rama's been a big player in the story of Samuel and Saul and David. And uh, he has arrived here in Rama uh, because his life is falling apart. It's not safe to him for him to be in his own home. Soldiers had been posted up outside of it so that they could take him into custody and have him killed. So he's got to get out of there. He's not going to run to his dad. They're going to look there first. And so he needs to find an oasis, a place of safety. And we want to answer this next story. What do we do when life falls apart? 
You know, what are the, what are the steps that we need to take? There's certainly many we could argue and, and read the Bible and find several. But, but here in this text, there's two. The first one is this. We need to go to those that God has given us in life. Does everybody understand that we've been given to each other? Like humans are, are not meant to function in these silos or in these, you know, uh, 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 kind of uh, away from everybody. Uh, and, and I know you get this. You're in families, you're in marriages, you're in friendships and relationships. We've been given to each other in the church, in the life that we have with Christ. We are his source of strength to each other. And so when, when life falls apart, certainly we go to his word and we seek his truth there. But we go to each other. For the support that we get, not just the words and the wisdom, but, but the care and the comfort and the protection that God intends us to provide. Look what it says in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he comes to who? Sam. Sam's been absent for a long time here in our story. Uh, apparently he's headed off here to Ramah, a place called Naioth, and he's just been hanging out there. He's kind of been just hands off with the whole Saul and David story. But this is where David goes first. Why? Because Sam got him into this. Kind of. (laughs) He did. He anointed him to be the next king of Israel. But he's also the prophet of God in Israel. Who better to go to to find out from God what he should do next than the man that God has appointed to be his voice in Israel at this time? He goes to Samuel at Ramah and he tells him all that Saul has done to him. And he and Samuel went, and it says they lived for a time, uh, he hid him there in a, in a place near Ramah or a region inside of Ramah called Naioth. It basically means uh, tents, uh, this, this collection of tents. And we're going to find out it's probably like a religious enclave. Now, there's lots of prophets there with Samuel who have uh, uh, kind of just committed to, to, to living a life in dedication to God and, and prophesying on his behalf. And that's where Sam takes him. He takes him as the man of God to the people of God so that he can be surrounded by the love of God and be protected from the things that would harm him. So great. Are you grateful for the people in your life who play the Samuel role for you? I mean, I, I could just walk through my 54 years of history and just tell you. It started in my home with my mom and my dad. Uh, as a teenager, I went almost chiefly to my mom for the counsel that she could give me. I got married, and I, I got this an amazing, wise Christian woman uh, you know, who's super hot and, and also super smart. Uh, sorry, babe. Uh, 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 but, but I've gone on to work in churches and, and to find staff mates, you know, uh, who, who have been my mentors as a younger man, who are, who are my partners as an older man. Uh, I, I have elders that I look to and, and, and we pray over the decisions of this church. I'm just so grateful to be surrounded by so many life-giving Christ followers. It's where I go. When things fall apart, it's where we need to go to receive God's wisdom, protection, and encouragement. So when things fall apart, go to those that God has given you in life. But then, ultimately and always, when things fall apart, exercise your trust muscles. Trust in God to provide. Say it with me. What did, the, the son of David is a guy named Solomon. He writes to his sons these famous words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Whatever your version was that you learned that in, that is bedrock, foundational, life with God, life with Christ stuff. Before I came in to preach, 
I'm walking through the foyer and I meet a brother and he, like all of us, is wrestling with doing this. It's hard. Sometimes not. Thank you, Lord, for those graces. But when things really heat up and get the levels like David is experiencing, like I don't know what to do at all and my life depends on me knowing. Well, what David's gonna see over and over again in his story, in his running, is God's provision. He'll escape again and again and again. He'll seek to honor God again and again and again. It'll be this little, you know, symbiotic, symbiotic, <laughs> symbiotic relationship. I'll trust in you, you'll provide for me. I'll trust in you, you'll provide for me. Read with me how he provides early on in his run. It says in verse 19, it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. So he's got uh, the pin has been dropped on his GPS. He's, he's got the whereabouts. And so Saul <laughs> sends some messengers, maybe not the two guys who went to his house. Those guys are probably on leave. But uh, he sends some messengers, and read there, soldiers, assassins. He sends some messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel, the prophet of God, standing his head over them, here's what happened. The Spirit of God came over the messengers, the assassins of Saul, and instead of killing David, they joined the prophets of Samuel, the prophets of God, and they went to church. They just started busting out. Throw They just started prophesying and singing praises to God and honoring God. They went from being the enemies of God and his anointed to being the choir mates with him. Are you with me? Well, it was told to Saul in verse 21 that this is what happened. So Saul's no, you know, sissy. He's going to send some other guys, and he's going to start going. I'm, I'm picturing he's in Masad, right, and he's starting to go up the, the layers of, Masad wasn't around back then, but, uh, uh, but he starts going up the layers of, of excellence, and he said, those guys, obviously, they totally got duped. These guys, they'll do my bidding, and so he, he sends, the, the, you know, the varsity team in, and uh, he sends other messengers, and guess what? Yeah, they started prophesying in God's name as well. And then Saul sends one more set of messengers. I'm, I'm picturing, he doesn't say how many. He started with a couple. I'm picturing like platoons going now, right? I mean, at least one of these guys is going to get through this, you know, prophesy shenanigan stuff and, and actually, you know, secure David and bring him back to me. But a third time he sends messengers. And what does it say? Yeah, they went to church too. Twice, once, twice, three times. Doesn't work. Uh, uh, Saul thinks that he can, and God is showing him you can't. <laughs> Anybody been there? Uh, I took uh, a walk with Eleanor and our dog, Toby. I've talked to you about him. He's 11 pounds of just uh, uh, feist and fury. And uh, uh, he gets near the dogs uh, in our neighborhood, and he just goes just loses it, just can't control himself, and uh, he'll start charging at them, and there's this Doberman, he's not as into that one, but, uh, uh, but where, where he thinks it might be a fair fight in his mind, he'll, he'll just go for it, right? And I got one of those like fishing pole uh, leashes, you know what I'm talking about, it's like the, it's, it's a, a, a retractable thing, and so I see the dogs, and I see, and he just, you know, rear, and he, he's just running. And what do I do? There's this little switch on that leash, and I just go, Kunk. <laughs> right? And this little 11-pound dog is losing his mind at the end of this leash. 
And we got to call her because we don't care. But uh, uh, he's just choking himself on this, on this collar, right? And he's He gets to the point where he chokes himself so bad he starts coughing. That's my favorite part. He just can't learn. Does it every time, right? And, and I'm standing there, and he's on his hind haunches, choking himself, coughing, and he doesn't understand that the guy at the other end of the leash has all the power in this situation. And here's Saul, doing his best to defy the will of God, to secure his throne, to end the life of the next anointed. And he's at the end of his leash going, uh, uh. And God's just like, Saul, 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 Saul. Anybody, that's my favorite part of the walk. Come on, bud. Anybody been on the end of that leash every once in a while? Where you thought that you thought that you knew that you knew? And God's like, no, we're not going over there. I hope, listen, look at me. I hope you get really good at just being like, hey, the leash has stopped. I think this is a big deal. Maybe it's not. Perhaps I should just keep walking with the master. But Saul doesn't do that. He's lousy at it. <laughs> he just, so so he's, he's finally fed up. Verse 22, he's going to take things into his own hands. So then he himself, he goes to Ramah. Enough! I'm picturing he's not alone. He's got a lot of dudes with him, right? And they're going to do his beck and call because they de- they're dead if they don't. And, and so he goes to Ramah and he comes to this great well. Before he's getting to Ramah, he comes to a place called Saku, and he asks there at this well, like any of us who have been lost, hey, where are Samuel and David? Where's this place you know, that they're staying at? And, and, and people recognize this is the king. Uh, behold, they're at this, you know, this region called Naoth here in Ramah. And, and so he starts heading, they point, and he starts heading in that direction. And as he went there to Naoth and Ramah, the Spirit of God came upon him also. And the king, who was like, if you want something done, do it yourself, is overcome by the power of the one true God. And it was shown with absolutely uh, no questions who's really in charge of Israel. Now, he doesn't want to prophesy to God. The Spirit of God has left him. He's been, uh, you know, plagued by another spirit that God has allowed to come over him. But, but even the enemies of God have no power against God. And, and he basically uh, makes Saul his puppet for a while. It says that he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. Don't you wonder what God made him say? I kind of picture it like Bart Simpson at the chalkboard. Anybody ever seen a Simpsons episode? Every one of the Simpsons episodes pretty much starts with Bart having to write out the chalkboard, which is a very old thing. We don't have chalkboards anymore. But back in my day, youngers, if you did something wrong, the teacher would make you write it like 50 times on the chalkboard in front of everybody else. It was a shaming process. I don't know what the psychology of that is, but it worked. And I picture Saul kind of being in that mode. God's like, hey, Saul, who's the king of Israel? David's the king of Israel, right? Hey, Saul, remember that song you hate? Sing it. Saul has killed his thousands, David's killed ten thousands. I mean, God's just like, look what I can make Saul do. Look at this fool. He doesn't stop there. Look at the last verse. 
says that he too stripped off his clothes. And this is an interesting sentence because none of the other messengers have gone and prophesied and been uh, displayed as, as taking off their clothes. And it seems weird. Ever read your Bible and been like, huh, that's weird. It's not weird. You just have to read the story before it. Does anybody remember in chapter 18 when David and Jonathan had their first meeting, what Jonathan did? It says there that he stripped. He took off his robe. This robe that would have signified his princely place in Israel. He says, no, Dave, this is yours. And he gave him his armor. He says, you're the prince. You're the crown prince. I'm not. And so God, as he's controlling this stupid king of Israel, says, hey, I'm going to make you say what I want you to say, and you're going to take off your robe. And it's going to be this sign to everybody that I have deposed you. You are no longer king of Israel. And you're going to lay there, it says, naked, day and night, and, and, and you're just going to do what I say. People are going to say, is Saul among the prophets? It was said of him earlier back in his anointing days that he uh, actually saw prophesied. It's in chapter 10 if you want to read it. But it's been this saying throughout. And now they're not saying it like in, in, in you know, spiritual awe. Is Saul really the anointed of God? Is he among the prophets? They're saying it, man, is Saul among the prophets again? It's not like it was before. He's laying there naked for 24 hours. Why? Again, God knows what he's doing. David needs time. And so all of these you know, uh, uh, men who have come, three sets of guys, uh, and, and then Saul himself, it's all so that David could have the space that he needs to get free from Saul and his wrath. Ah, oh, the purposes of God cannot fail. He is bigger than, everybody say that with me. God is bigger than, say that. God is bigger than. And then there's a blank after that than, and it's whatever's going on in your life. God is bigger than that. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than her. He's bigger than him. He's bigger than their dumb choices that you sit over a steak dinner and listen to as you sit with your kids. Ha. Sorry, that was Thursday. Anyway, he's bigger than all of those things. He's able to come into situations where people are on their way to persecute and kill Christians, Saul of Tarsus, and make them a Christian and use them to write most of your Bible. This is the God that we serve. Nothing is too hard for him. He is bigger than. We get frustrated sometimes because he doesn't do the bigger than stuff that we want him to do. But he's in charge. It's his will that needs to be done. And there is never a moment in history, doesn't matter what's happened in the Middle East or in Russia and Ukraine or historically in our world, there's never been a moment that has existed that God has not been sovereign over all things at all times. And so now, may you and I remember that the truth is crucial and all things discern the truth. When life falls apart, go to those that God has given us in life. <laughs> receive from them, receive from God through them. But in all things, I know this is kind of just, you know, what every sermon ends up being, trust in God. Trust in God to provide. It can seem so flippant and you get down in the weeds of your situation, you're like, yeah, but that's just words. They're words until you live them. They're words until you choose them. They're words until you believe what I just told you, that God is bigger than whatever you're facing. He may have a different clock than you. He may have a different result in mind. But everything is in his hands. And that's why we throw up our hands. 
and praise him again and again. We're going to sing that in a second. Let me pray for us. God, so grateful to be with uh, my family again to talk through your word. Thanks for your truth. Use it in our lives as we get ready to baptize some folks. Uh, Thanks for showing them yourself and for leading them to life with you. God, bless their obedience and old baptism. Bless them as they walk through life, wherever they end up and whatever they end up facing. Help them to trust in you. And I pray it in Jesus' name.